Good morning. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Well, I don't know about you, but I love learning about history, and I especially love it when it's presented in a format that brings those stories from our past alive. Well, today's guest does exactly that. I am ecstatic to welcome Dawn K. Wing. Dawn is a reference and instruction librarian at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul, Minnesota. She helps students develop their information, media, and cultural literacy skills, particularly through pop culture and graphic narratives. She promotes diverse voices and underrepresented histories by coordinating community engagement events and programs such as film screenings, literary readings, and zine workshops. Dawn is also an artist. Her work includes comics, zines, prints, collages, and more. She is the founder of Water Pig Press. Water Pig Press was awarded the 2022 Minnesota State Arts Board Creative Support for Individuals Grant to debut her second historical comics biography, Tian Fu Wu, Freedom Warrior, which is a comics biography about Tian Wu, a survivor of child trafficking and advocate for Chinese victims of sex trafficking during the Chinese Exclusion Act era in San Francisco's Chinatown. Good morning, Don. Thank you so much for being a repeat guest. Oh, my pleasure. I'm always happy to speak with you and share whatever I can with your audience and hope that, you know, um, it just piques people's interest in learning more about underrepresented her stories, um, particularly um, how and how they are connected to contemporary issues that we are still facing with today, kind of explanations as to the hows and the whys and the legacies of um, ongoing injustices um, that our ancestors fought hard to resist and to change for us. And and now we have that torch and it's incumbent on us to um, carry their voices and um, that spirit of resilience. And I do that in the form of, as you mentioned in that brilliant introduction, thank you, (laughs) um, through um, art um, and word and images and through teaching as well. And I just love to infuse all my interests and passions and curiosities in that way. So I'm happy to share uh, with your audience further that process. And, yes. and it, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. You know, and I love what you said about really learning from our ancestors and learning, you know, what they were doing, how they were fighting a variety of different oppressions that, as you mentioned, we're still facing today, maybe in slightly different formats and obviously in a different context, but we can learn so much. And this is your second comics biography that really delves into some of these underrepresented her stories. So earlier this year, we talked about your debut historical comics biography about Tai Leung Schultz, the first Chinese American woman to cast a vote in a presidential election in 1912. And when you told me you had a second historical comics biography coming out this fall, I knew I had to have you back on the show. And from what I've read so far of your latest book, I am completely astounded mm-hmm. at um, what Tian Wu was able to do. And again, taking those lessons, which I think is so important, taking those lessons of her life story 
story and thinking about our our present day context and what how we could be like her in being a freedom warrior as well. Yeah, um, it's all about being fierce and uh, not being afraid of living your truth, which I feel like in Tian, and when I delved into her story, um, after finishing my book on Tyler and Schultz, who, as you mentioned, was the first Chinese American woman to vote. Speaking of which, the eighth is election day, so go vote. <laughs> I mean, it's major elections across the country, uh, women's rights. I mean, a lot of the issues that were covered in that book, um, mm-hmm. particularly around, um, you know, abortion rights and whatnot. I mean, it's still, it's, 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 to me, it's mind blowing, like Tyler and Schultz. And I'll get back to Tianfu Wu. She um, was actually arrested for helping women get abortions in um, the 1940s when she was in her later years, right? So she, throughout mm-hmm. her life, she broke a lot of boundaries um, and and laws, you know, just because she wanted to live her life in a way that was not compromising, despite the discrimination um, in in the form of laws and and racist policies and misogyny, um, and so. Here we are in 2022, Sana. I, right. I mean, it's just, it's very scary, and yeah. again, that's why it's like if we don't know these histories and these figures who, you know, are not in our textbooks, but they they were everyday people actually, right? And when I tell these stories, I'm like, they're very human, mm-hmm. um, they're very vulnerable. And Tian Wu, because I was able to find more primary sources, Tyler and Schultz, she, I relied a lot on secondary sources and like mm-hmm. interviews with her descendants who grew up with her, lived with her, like her grandchildren, and they were able to give me more details of who she was. Um, but Tian Fu Wu uh, remained single for her entire life. Uh, she was a tough cookie, we'll put it that way. <laughs> Um, and she, um, unlike Tyler and Schultz, um, she's very fascinating because she was, yes, sold into child slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was born in China, so she was not an American citizen. And in my book, I kind of talk about how she, when she became naturalized, when there was that opportunity and she wanted to, um, you know, she was a she was a very she stuck to her values and she did not want to agree to saying, yes, I will take up arms to defend the United States. Mm-hmm. because I, I'm a pacifist and I, I'm like, wow, you know, like. She just and she ultimately become became naturalized a naturalized citizen. Um, but she 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 defied conventions. You know, she could have gotten married if she wanted to. She didn't. She wanted to stay dedicated to the work of helping um, girls and women out of bondage, just as the Presbyterian Church, which we'll discuss a little bit more um, in a bit, mm-hmm. uh, out in San Francisco. That Presbyterian Church mission home played a really major role in um, yeah getting her out of a situation that. Um, was terrible. Um, you know, she was being dehumanized and debased. And, uh, you know, at the age of around seven, she uh, was rescued by these missionaries and, but, and um, you know, again, dedicated the rest of her life, you know, uh, took her education seriously um, and was just very focused and risked her life. They both, Tyler and Schultz and Tian Fu and a lot of the Chinese American women who did the important work of using their bilingual skills and their bicultural mm-hmm. skills uh, to build community relationships because these white missionaries needed that, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of carrying on their missions to convert 
the Chinese um, and whatnot, um, and to and there is also this temperance movement. So they're they're kind of like, oh my gosh, there's all these terrible things happening, like human trafficking and all these vices, and so they it was just this symbiotic relationship that um, is inevitably a part of her story, which I um, yeah tell through my own illustrations, but also incorporate historic photographs um, when possible. Mm-hmm. I I love how you've made this story, but also not only her story, not only Tian Wu's story, but also the story of history so relatable and understandable. I think a lot of times we think history and we think, oh, it's so boring. What does it have to do with my life today or, or the world today? But you have this great gift of showing us why it's so relevant. And I think the other thing that you mentioned, you know, Tian Wu was just a regular person, right? You know, we tend to think about people who did such amazing work as being superhuman or having some special sort of talent or gift. Um, But this wasn't an everyday woman and that's not to diminish what she did, but I think to give us us also strength and and hope and belief that we too as regular people right could do some really important work um so i want to get in a little bit more about tian wu's story because you mentioned um you know she was a child um, very young seven and even younger than that when she was enslaved um and so could you tell us a little bit more about how she even got to the U.S. and kind of fill out that history for us. What was the time period like? And then how did she actually physically get here to the United States? Sure. Great question. Um, So Tian Fu was uh, born in China in a in a province not too far from Shanghai. And her father had a gamble. He was a gambler and he was not a great person. (laughs) She speaks very honestly about her struggle, you know, a lot of her anger. She, I loved that when I heard her interview her own voice, like in these recordings from like back in the sixties and and seventies, right before she died, she would say, oh, you know, he just was a terrible, awful person. He was abusive towards her Mm -hmm. mother and just no good. Just, you know, her mother was very loving her. um, I believe it was her mother's mother. So her maternal grandmother who was in Shanghai, they actually had came from money a little bit, but you know, it was, um, and it still is a very patriarchal society, right? Um, and boys were more valued um, than girls. And um, so there was that bias. And so if there was a family that had um, more girls and boys and they were impoverished, it wasn't, it was not uncommon for the girls to be sold off to wealthier families. And that was kind of seen as like a charitable thing on the part mm-hmm. of these wealthy families to be like, oh, we're doing this little girl a favor and maybe she might get gain her freedom or get out of uh, what is called this muay jai or this little sister. That's how it translates in Cantonese. It's kind of a euphemistic, <laughs> like, oh, here's little mm-hmm. sister, but she's really like the child's leave. Um, and, uh, so, so anyway, um, so, you know, sometimes that would happen if, if, if it was a family that was just like really, really poor, um, and they, they just like, we, there's another mouth to feed and she's a girl and okay. Like she's going to be better off, um, being this Muay Jai with a wealthier family. And usually that was, those were just abusive, um, Mm -hmm. situations for, for the Muay Jai for the, the young girls. Um, and sometimes they may get married off or they could, you know, become, you know, be forced into prostitution or, you know, um, concubines and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the case of Tian Fu Wu, um, she, her father was very deceptive and, you know, kind of it's covered in the book, tells her one day, hey, we're just going to 
take a boat ride to visit your grandmother in Shanghai and she believes him right because she's mm-hmm. really young and so but lo and behold what happens is that he's actually negotiating a deal to sell her off um mm-hmm. for to pay off his gambling debts and I and the mother um she re- really remembers this vividly just the mother knows about this but just right. you know it's distraught and yeah and so it's just like a heartbreaking scene that I was like wow I I can't Im-. I mean I allowed my I had to imagine it to depict it you know mm-hmm. just to kind of um be like okay this is this is how this happened and this um still continues to happen right when we talk about immigrant um immigration and people and just women and girls being exploited you know because they're in these vulnerable situations like they want to get out of you know um countries where it, there's warfare or just just poverty um just difficult situations and how they get deceived and um hey you know you can go and be you know work in the U.S. as someone's maid or you know you're going to marry this person and they get sold into prostitution and you know it's unfortunate right and but it's just the same kind of story and cycle and um so she uh ends up in San Francisco um, being a Muay Jai uh, in a in a brothel in Chinatown, not not as a prostitute, but just as like a an errand girl, and then she gets sold off, get passed off a few times, and um, ends up with this family where the um, matron of the household is really physically abusive towards her, and a neighbor, a very sympathetic neighbor, and you know, thank thanks to that neighbor, right? That we right. Don't, I don't know their name, but the neighbor knew um, of her situation and felt for her, and so told reported it to the Presbyterian Mission Home. And um, ultimately, eventually, there were uh, there was a police officer accompanying one of the, um, the the staff at the mission home to come get her, um, and they were able to keep her. Um, it's not always easy. Like, uh, there's just books uh, written, and it's in my bibliography of the book um, of people who like the White Devil's Daughter is a really great book that I highly recommend if people want to do further reading. I cite the book a lot um, in terms of the historical context. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's by Julia Flynn uh, Seiler. And uh, so so anyway, I yeah, there's just, yeah, the church just did a lot. And um, but it was they were also targeted by criminals, <laughs> organized criminals, <laughs> you know, traffickers. And, you know, and it's it's no news i mean it's just the the they again as i said the church relied on chinese american translators like tian fu Wu and tyler and schultz and they were known in the community these chinese american women so their lives were endangered and their lives were threatened and they were you know smeared and not exactly um elevated (laughs) from you know in the with some people you know were appreciative but it was also it required a lot of um, calculated risk. Sometimes they would have to hide out and not be in public after doing like a rescue mission, or um, they did a lot of translation work, um, sometimes in disguise, you know, to go to places like brothels to get women out um, if they knew that there was someone who was trying to to get to the mission home. Um, and they also showed up <clears throat> in court. So it was a very public um, role that they played. And um, in, in Ten Fu's case, how I actually came to her story was um, a scholar named Edward Wong. He used to be the head of the Angel Island Immigration Foundation. He's mm-hmm. a scholar and, you know, he um, has since retired from his position as director of the Immigration Foundation. <clears throat> the long story short, years ago, someone said, oh, talk to um, Edward Wong and he could give you some leads and give you more information about 
at first Tian, Tian, Tyler and Schultz. And then he said, oh, you know, she, there's a contemporary of Tyler and Schultz um, who also worked alongside with her at the Presbyterian home. And I really think you should tell her this person's story too. And her name's Tian Fu Wu. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I never heard of her. And he was like, yeah, I just wrote an article about her. And um, she played a really key role in this really important case called the Broken Blossoms case. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that is pretty groundbreaking because this was again still, <clears throat> even though it was in the 1930s, so right before World War II, and the Chinese Exclusion Act was still in effect, right? It's still mm-hmm. to this day the first um and the um only uh kind of official like policy that the US passed banning a group of uh people based on their nationality mm-hmm. um and uh again that that era <clears throat> and that kind of xenophobia that still a legacy that we <laughs> hear right. the rhetoric and the racism and the you know um just what's going on with the venezuelan refugees and and migrants that are you know it's just that story is very much you know something that is the fabric of our history <laughs> that um we need to kind of know more about and understand like uh, but anyway, so she, so anyway, this case was pretty groundbreaking because there were, she, Tan Fu Wu helped as a translator and witness three survivors of sex trafficking. They were all Chinese women, Chinese American women, prosecute their former traffickers. Oh, wow. Um, and, and they actually won that case. Um, mm-hmm. So the traffickers were, the judge ruled in um, against the traffickers and the traffickers were deported. Um, and that's pretty amazing considering yeah. the defendants were all like Chinese American women, um, they were, you know, the Chinese, again, were, were not welcome. You know, they weren't someone who were, who uh, the, the, the U.S. government, at least in the eyes of many Americans, were seen to be equals or um, human even or deserving of rights. But they were they succeeded um, in that case. And um, yeah, so she just was really fierce and um, resilient and relentless and kind of using whatever skills and resources she had to um serve justice um Mm -hmm. and she was also very devout so she was and very spiritual so she's like this is god's work and um yeah i kind of find that she despite the struggles that she endured Mm -hmm. personally uh you know in terms of the betrayal of her father and (laughs) family separation and Mm -hmm. all that trauma um you know she kept going she kind of like learned how to channel those complex emotions and kind of and she was very open and very like cognizant and reflective of how she uh protected herself by emotionally withholding but she eventually Mm -hmm. learned to to love through her work and to love um her mentor uh donaldina cameron who is a very famous um uh presbyterian mission uh head that she worked with very closely and, and it ultimately called her Lomo, which is like a uh, respectful term in Cantonese for mother. Mm-hmm. So, you know, her story of transformation um, is, is, yeah, it's a very hopeful tale. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot of just, you know, you go and you, you know, we may sometimes be like, how can, how can we live in a society where humans treat each other in this way? Mm-hmm. And we can let that get us down or we can just say, you know, we're going to do what's right and, and stand with, uh, doing what, um, is in spirit of goodness, um, and to uplift and to serve, you know, and to promote that, um, versus, you know, um, getting 
caught up and distracted and doing other things that are not so constructive or not so helpful, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, Tian Fu Wu's life is so inspirational. And again, giving us even that roadmap for not getting bogged down by our, our circumstances, whether personal circumstances or the circumstances in which we live in society, but actually deciding like, I'm going to do something where I am with what I have to try to, you know, not to sound cliche, but try to make the world a better place. And yeah. she certainly did. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WY. YXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Don Wing, the founder of Water Pig Press and also the creator of Tian Fu Wu Freedom Warrior, a historical comics biography that, as you can guess, is telling the story about Tian Fu Wu. And before the break, you kind of gave us an overview of some of the things that Tian was able to do um, in her lifetime. Phenomenal absolutely phenomenal. And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about, about her story, of course, and also again, in the context in which she was here, because as you mentioned, you know, this was happening, you know, her coming to the U.S. and then a lot of the work she was doing was happening during the Chinese exclusion era in the U.S. And even when she initially comes over, it's still right during this time period. So how was she able to come to the U.S. Um, and actually end up res end up residing here in the face of the Chinese Exclusion Act? Yes, yeah, so I mentioned the uh, Presbyterian Mission Home uh, played an important role. And in San Francisco's Chinatown, um, that church still exists, that community center. Um, it's now named the Donaldina Cameron House, but originally it was the Presbyterian Mission Home and it was established in 1874. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, from the 18, from since its founding to the 1930s, there were between 2,000 to 3,000 residents that came through that they helped. Wow. <laughs> um, and it wasn't all just Chinese girls and women. Um, there were Japanese, you know, women, girls and women of Japanese descent and other um, ethnic, ethnic groups. Um, and um, many of them were paper daughters or they were um, the girls coming from China, at least, and the young woman, um, they were uh, smuggled through and they were told by their traffickers, you know, you need to say, don't give the, they were coached, right, to right. go through Angel Island and say, don't give your real name. We have these papers. You're going to say you're so-and-so's daughter. Mm -hmm. um, because there was, with this um, Chinese Exclusion Act, what happened was um, it opened up for these criminal activities, like trafficking right. was right, because, you know, that didn't stop, obviously, um, people wanting to get out of China, which was going through a lot of political and economic turmoil. Um, and then and the open wars played a role in that, but that's kind of going like way back in history. Um, but long story short, there were people just mostly from uh, Guangdong, which is like the Southern Chinese region where my, my ancestors came from, my grandparents. I'm, I'm Cantonese speaking, I'm a third generation Chinese American. And also a descendant of um, someone who came through this paper son, paper daughter system. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's kind of where, um, so the Chinese Exclusion Act, in short, um, it it didn't completely ban all Chinese. If you were a merchant or a student, let's say, you know, if you had the kind of special status, like, then it wasn't easy, but it was sort of um 
you weren't seen as much of a threat as if you were a laborer, let's say, mm-hmm. because there was um, these white working men parties in the U.S. Um, that uh, were a huge force in um, driving like a lot of propaganda and politicians to create and uh, pass what would become the Chinese Exclusion Act saying, oh, the Chinese, they're dirty, they're heathen, they're taking our jobs. And, you know, kind of unfortunately similar rhetoric that we hear today um, with um, immigrants coming from Latin America. And um, a lot of, you know, those migrants or undocumented immigrants are doing a lot of hard labor, right? And then getting paid, you know, and being exploited for that. Um, And so it was mostly men coming in um, through this non-legal way of, um, you know, they would pay money to pretend that they were let's say a Chinese merchant's uh, son, like, so this Chinese, so a lot of the Chinese merchants that were established in the U.S. already before the Chinese Exclusion Act profited, they knew, they can say, okay, like, we can say we have this many sons and daughters, and we're sponsoring them, right, and so there was a lot of um, deception and false identities, again, my own grandfather and his brothers, like, went through that system of saying they were someone else's son, and so that's why a number of Chinese Americans, you know, third, fourth, fifth generation, like their American last names, even though they actually maybe like Chinese last names are not their actual, they they don't actually match our actual. So I have to explain that to people. And it's a great learning opportunity. I wrote a a comic about that. Um, Names, names say a lot. And of course, in terms of in the US with immigrants, just no matter where you come, when they come to America, they'll anglicize their names and try to sound less ethnic, right? Um, And but if you're a person of Asian descent, it's like, okay, you can try to change your name, but you can't really change your face. (laughs) Like people are going to still discriminate against you and make all these racist assumptions and, um, you know, uh, and, you know, be prejudiced in accordingly. Um, so yeah. the Chinese Exclusion Act, it was um, mostly men. So it was a, a lot of bachelor, it was a bachelor society. A lot of the um, communities here, a lot of the Chinatowns, uh, before the Chinese Exclusion Act, there was the gold rush and uh, there was this recruitment of cheap labor um, through the the railroads, the transcontinental railroad companies. And so that's why there was a huge population of Chinese men. And then the, the white folks felt very threatened by that. And then hence the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, and, and there were also simultaneously anti-miscegenation laws so that Chinese men couldn't, it was illegal for them to marry um, mm-hmm. women outside of their race. So what does that have? you know, what does that brew, that brews sex trafficking? Um, mm-hmm. And so there was um, a number of women who were deceived, tricked, or, you know, uh, into thinking that maybe they were going to get married or be in a better situation, and then they end up in, in prostitution, mm-hmm. um, forced prostitution. And um, there was also a PAGE Act um, of that that preceded the Chinese Exclusion Act that was very explicit about um, limiting Chinese women and being very um, strict. You know, if there were women, you know, coming through Angel Island, like they were presumed prostitutes, and sometimes they were, they, you know, they were legitimate wives of merchants or whatever. So it was just a lot of yeah, ra- racist um, rhetoric and and stereotypes of oh, you know, like there's um, syphilis or these venereal diseases it must be coming from the Chinese woman that, you know, so it, it was very complicated. Um, there were um, 
a lot of players in terms of just like um, organized criminals, um, mm -hmm. like Chinese, like the Tongs they're called in, in Chinese, um, who worked with corrupt white officials, right? Who kind I of mean. allowed, right? Like this is what people need to realize, like this is all like there's different people, different positions of power um, who work together to kind of enable these kinds of corrupt um, systems. Um, that is still very much what we st are still dealing with today um, mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, so basically, that was just the <laughs> to set kind of like the um, the scenario, the situation that Tian Fu had to. She knew, right? Like she kind of right. knew. Okay, she even says like, and I'm like I quote her. She, you know, there are there are good and bad people both, you know, in the Chinese community, good and bad people in the white community, right? And so you just some some of the police officers were helpful some not so much um right. like today so <laughs> yeah so um yeah that she just had to be very knowledgeable and um she was really good at like building relationships and um she and and just to kind of in her particular case how she was able to thrive despite um that kind of the oppression and discrimination um was benefactors they were like the presbyterian mission home uh were able to connect with um you know presbyterian leaders figures across the country to say hey we have these these success stories or these girls like tian wu and and they are doing great work for us and um but they want to pursue education and you know like they, they the presbyterian mission home was um not rolling in a dough you know they were it was, you know when I was in the archives it was just a lot of struggle of fundraising and trying to get fun you know and even in her story she was like yeah we we were eating scraps like we just yeah. you know it wasn't a lot and so um it was with the help of she had a benefactor out in the east coast and that's she went to this all-girls school um that I want to say Grace Kelly also went to it was the Stevens school so very prestigious and she got her education there and also went to a seminary, a Bible school um, in Toronto. Um, but, and, you know, again, she could have gone off to become a doctor or, you know, there were some alumna of the Presbyterian home who were, became like the first of many fields, you know, right. um, but she was like, you know what, no, I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm going to use my education and carry out my purpose, you know, which is to continue playing a really key role helping Donaldina Cameron mm -hmm. um you know uh and she did she stuck by Donaldina Cameron for the rest of Donaldina Cameron's career um and uh they are actually buried next to each other oh, wow. <laughs> you know in East LA and Evergreen Cemetery yeah like she was essentially family because she didn't have any um because of her circumstances so yeah yeah, I mean, I think it's so amazing, Tian Fu Wu's life, but also all of the circumstances, which thank you so much for giving us kind of this historical context, because I think it's really important to understand how it was that a lot of Chinese girls and women were being trafficked, right? And like you said, some being deceived and, and thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, have a husband or a better, right, this idea of a better life. Uh, but in fact, they are being, you know, human trafficked 
human trafficking and importantly, the context, right? Why was this able to even flourish and the process behind it, right? As you mentioned, it's people in positions of power, both on both ends who are facilitating this and allowing this to occur, but it's also a response to other laws and policies that are in response to other, you know, racism, xenophobia, and so I think it is important to have all this context for Tian Wu's story, but also, and again, this is what I love about your work because of the direct connections to things that are still happening today, right? Racism and xenophobia we see today against um, Chinese Americans or Asian Americans more broadly, um, and even thinking about sex trafficking, human trafficking, and all of these other um, social issues that continue, right, to happen. But here in this one woman's story, we see how she was really truly able to make a difference. And she didn't let those circumstances, as horrific as they were, um, constrain her, right? She, she used those and turned it into something else where she could feel, I imagine that she felt empowered, um, or at the very least that she was able to, you know, empower other people for sure. Um, the other piece of this story that I think is so interesting is the Presbyterian Mission Home. I was really fascinated because as you mentioned, you know, um, how many people were, were being impacted in a positive way by the Presbyterian Mission Home, but also that connection uh, from Ty Schultz um, and then also Tian Wu in, in the Presbyterian Mission Home. And so could you tell us a little bit more about the Presbyterian Mission Home? You know, how did it come to be about and what was its specific mission, <laughs> so to speak, um, in the context of San Francisco and, and in Chinatown, specifically where it was located? Oh, great question. Um, I, oh, and before I delve in, I do want to give a shout out to uh, librarian Violet Fox in Northwestern University. When she got my book at one of the um, comics festivals I was at, uh, she created this Wikipedia entry that is excellent. Um, and as a librarian, I'm always just like, okay, you know, be very discerning when you're um, you know, getting information from Wikipedia, but I know that she created the entry. And so that that actually has a lot of great links and um, further readings, like to address That's these cool. questions about the historical context and whatnot, whether it's about Mui Jai and um, Chinese Exclusion Act, Paper Daughters, and including the Presbyterian Mission Home. There's like a section on that that I'm looking at right now. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and so the book, Again, white the white devil's daughter, the woman who fought slavery in, in San Francisco's Chinatown by Julia Flynn Siler is a great book that um, really gets to um, the life of Donaldina Cameron, who is one of the most famous um, superintendents of the mission home. Um, she wasn't the only one, but she's the most famous one. Hence, what that's why the Presbyterian Mission Home was named after her. Um, so basically, um, during that time, the Presbyterian Mission Home, I think they were strategic they were wanting to mm -hmm. kind of see like okay um you know how can we just get more followers you know and and there were and they kind of saw okay there's the these uh this community of um immigrants and the chinese and they um you know there there was a, there were racist perceptions of kind of like okay these heathens need to be saved kind of kind of a thing but there is also this sort of like okay but they can also help spread the religion internationally like across borders um and so why don't we you know because they kind of had that 
vision of um, thinking globally, but kind of starting, you know, like looking at what was happening during that time in the U.S. And that was just seeing that there were uh, the, the Chinese immigrants coming to the U.S. and um, seeing that they, uh, you know, were in these communities. And so the Presbyterian Mission Home, the organization kind of knew to like have um to build a church with in the communities like go, you go to where they the people are that you want to convert um and also but a number of the women um were uh did have you know feminist values i don't know if they would use that term but um but in my reading i would say yes a lot of them were about like women girls and women could benefit from education and work skills and and all that stuff and that they are um they should be um living uh in a in a way that's not demeaning and dehumanizing and debased right and so when so they're in these communities where there's just the sex trafficking going on and the mu and there are these muijais and and they were held in bondage so they kind of made that a focus right of their at least in the mission home in san francisco um because it was just so prevalent um and so they when they were able to work with um, law enforcement who are cooperative, <laughs> you know, and the legal system. So they did a lot of that work too, kind of like legal aid stuff, um, in addition to being basically a shelter, you know, to help um, women who were, uh, you know, in violent um, and abusive situations. Um, but they also, and they also, as I said, um, taught English and they did a lot of things that basically, it was also a way to assimilate, right? To have like the Chinese um, assimilate to American society and become good Christians and do the work of God and all that stuff. So there, you know, there was that, again, that tinge of sort of like patronizing, like racism stuff, but, um, uh, and, and it was also Tian Wu like recognized that, you know, it's, it's right. not like to say she didn't, you know, um, see how sometimes that kind of mentality worked against her. And um, so hence she actually was offered um, an opportunity to basically replace her mentor to run, you know, to be the superintendent. And she opted not to knowing that um, she would have to kind of deal with the politics and these kinds of um, insinuations, right? Or there were people who may kind of question her authority or her abilities because she was Chinese, not white. <laughs> she was like, right. And so there was kind of like, oh, you know, even the language, some of the language I would see in the primary documents from the Presbyterian mission home, it's like, oh, our little Chinese helpers. And, mm. oh, you know, so it's that kind of language and that kind of mentality mm. um, that they had to deal with that was maybe kind of subtle, like, you know, for, you know, maybe not, it may not be apparent to people like outside mm. of the, the mission home community, but um, that was just something they had to navigate, right? Because of those power dynamics and that kind of, um, that was just, that is still in play in the United States today in terms of white supremacy and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, but anyway, nonetheless, like they're, they're, the Presbyterian Mission Home uh, played a really pivotal role in helping um, the Chinese uh, Americans in the Chinese community. Um, women who, the Chinese girls and women who came through the home, if they wanted to get married, let's say um, Tian Fu Wu and Donald Nina Cameron were like matchmakers. <laughs> like, I didn't know this, but they, because they had a network, right? So they're right, like, okay, yeah. you know, like make this, okay, we have like, like good Chinese Christian men and women um, 
out in the, you know, across the U.S. And um, let's, you know, we want them to have families and, you know, good Christian families and children. So then um, Tian Wu would be the matchmaker and kind of vet to make sure that, because um, it was still dangerous. It's like, okay, we don't want to just put, um, you know, a resident of the mission home on a train to go to, let's say, Chicago if right. he's going to get kidnapped again or something. So she actually had to be like bodyguard, you know, matchmaker. <laughs> um, she would, you know, escort women um, to and kind of see that they were settled and it was legitimate and all that stuff. So that was really, really fascinating that she played that role as well. Um, and it didn't always work out in terms of it being a, like a blissful marriage. And I cover that in my book, like certain cases, she's like, oh no, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, you know, there, there's a Presbyterian mission home, um, or church that's pretty prominent with the Chinese American community here where I currently reside in mm-hmm. the twin cities in Minneapolis. So yeah. So some of the women, um, were able to get out of San Francisco, um, and like relocate to marry, like. Chinese Christian men and start families and so um yeah like if you talk to Chinese Americans you know third fourth or fifth generation they'll say oh yeah you know it will usually be if their families did attend church it, it would be the presbyterian church wow. and mm-hmm. that's it kind of stems to to the the work of Donaldina Cameron quite frankly <laughs> um and kind of like their that that the presbyterian's church's mission to deliberately you know connect right. to the chinese community um, so that's why. And so because I have non-Chinese folks, um, when I tell this history to them, they're like, why the Presbyterian church or why? Like, <laughs> I, who would have thought like the Chinese and the Presbyterians? I'm like, well, this is why it goes back yeah. to that time and that place in history. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't my, I, I grew up Catholic. And I think a lot of people find that to be interesting, like Chinese Catholic. Uh, but 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 that's because my mother uh, was born in Hong Kong. And so it, when it was still under British rule, when it was still a colony, and so there were Catholic missionaries, right? And so hence, that's why, <laughs> right? And so people need to kind of put that together in terms of like colonization and missionaries and right. <laughs> and conversion and, and, you know, all that and the power dynamics and right. resources. And so, um, and there were derogatory terms for Chinese Christians. They were sometimes called rice Christians mm. at that time, kind of very cynical, like, oh, you know, they're just these Chinese girls and women, they're just converting just to kind of like benefit from the reap the benefits and whatever right. and assimilate. But it's like, no, she was, a le- she was a legit Christian and she did God's work and all that <laughs> stuff. Um, so, yeah. yeah. That is so fascinating. Again, just how we think about history as something that was in the past, right? That it's over as if it was just contained within a certain decade or or time period, but it's all around us. It's, it is our lives and we're living in the histories of the past. Um, and you know, a lot of times we don't know those connections, but I think once we understand them, we, get a broader understanding of the world itself. And as you've mentioned throughout these power dynamics that ha- have shaped and continue to shape our society. And so something as, you know, like church or dom- denomination or, or your faith life, you might just think of as just like, oh, it just kind of is, but there is a reason, right? Um, in some cases, a very calculated reason um, for that, that tells us something about a time period in history but also again, what's happening present day. So I think that's so, it's so phenomenal. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just, I love to learn <laughs> all of these things. 
Um, and again, I especially love that you have all of this great historical information in, in the form of a comics biography, which I think makes it um, very easily digestible for people across age ranges, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be maybe that stereotype of a, a dusty history book that's, you know, just dates and, you know, names, but really a story, right? A story of someone's life, but also the communities that they're a part of. Ah, oh, so amazing. I'm just like, so in awe, like it's so, it's so cool. Um, well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dawn K. Wing. She is the founder of Water Pig Press. And we've been talking about um, one of her historical comics biographies. In this case, we've been talking about Tian Fu Wu, Freedom Warrior. And I'm still so blown away uh, by Tian Wu's life, but also blown away by all of your research, right? In order to tell this story with all of its details and listeners, of course, we've only covered a little bit of Tian Wu's life because you need to buy the book and read, right? Read, get all of the details. But it also, you know, I'm not lost on the fact that this is the result of a lot of work, right? A lot of in the archives, meeting people, making connections. So could you share a little bit about that process with us? Sure. Um, well, I just, when I came across the primary sources, whether it's transcripts, um, letters, uh, through secondary sources or published books like The White Devil's Daughter, which I mentioned a couple of times here already, um, or like listening to uh, recorded interviews with um, that Tian Wu did with previous scholars that are in on cassette tapes <laughs> still. Um, <laughs> and I hope they're in the process of being digitized, but whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, there's just so much rich material and there's, and I wanted to depict and imagine like both scenes that she describes with such poignancy and um, vulnerability, just these kinds of like um, intimate moments that she has with certain people in her life, like her mother, Donalita Cameron. I wanted to actually like illustrate that. Um, and I also, there was also a lot of action scenes too. And I'm like, oh, this would be really cool to just show in pictures because I, mm -hmm. I think it could just say a lot. Right. And the text is just really there to, I use mostly her actual words as much as possible, like direct quotes or I'm paraphrasing. And I, um, as I mentioned, I grew up Catholic. I don't know if I mentioned this in my previous episode with you, but the aesthetic is similar to the illuminated manuscript. Mm. Um, which is just, uh, I think are like the, a prototype of like a sort of predecessor to like the modern day comic book, because it's just like these stories, these, um, stories from the Bible or stories of saints that, um, get told with these very detailed, um, images that are very cartoony mm -hmm. and, but also ornate. So there's just yeah. like an elevation to the text and I love calligraphy. And then that is an art form in itself. It is very visual. Um, and so I wanted to like replicate that um, and to elevate her, her words and her story and her spirit, yeah. you know, to have that come through. I'm big on colors. Mm -hmm. So it, of course, a lot of historic photos and I'm thankful that they existed. Um, it was available, you know, during that time. And um 
some of that has been digitized and I was able to get that and integrate it into the book. Um, you know, I was just like, I don't need to change anything. I think the photograph speaks a lot for itself, whether it's portraits of her as a young woman, as an older woman, um, you know, photo street photographs by Arthur Genth that I found through the Library of Congress. So I had to do a lot of historical photo research as reference to kind of, um, yeah, know how to paint the scene of just what did the streets look like at the time in Chinatown? Obviously, Chinatown then looks mm -hmm. very different from Chinatown today. If there are still Chinatowns, a lot of Chinatowns got burned down or, you know, in certain cities. Right. But the one in San Francisco, it's still there, um, the historic Chinatown. Um, but obviously, it looks it doesn't look anything like it did back in the 1880s with the cobblestone streets and the alleyway. The alleyways are still there, but um, it's a very different vibe. Anyway, so there were these beautiful photographs that I was um, able to use and cite so that if there are people who want to look more at the collection of Arthur Ghent, um, uh, it's it's available and I did my due diligence of consulting with librarians yeah. um, such as though at the Library of Congress can I use this image and you know it's like okay there's no known copyrights for this so you know just caveat right as a librarian I also want to like show my readers and students that I teach like best practices <laughs> it's like right. you should always you know um, and uh, so anyway I just spent on and off like I work full-time so whenever I have time in my summers like Either I was able to get uh, grant funding, whether it's from the Minnesota State Arts Board, thank you for the shout out to them, <laughs> for that uh, grant that I got in 2022 for individual artists and also through my institution. So I'm fortunate as an academic librarian, um, I was able to apply for professional development development funds to pursue this research and to produce these books um, and to go off uh, and share them at yeah. different conferences um and at festivals and to meet folks like you so not at the association of asian american yeah. studies so um i am just i kind of from the get-go i knew i wanted to present this research this historical narrative um through t these individuals lives kind of you know it's like th these are you know there's a lot of history in here but it's also like through the experience of these humans that did extra remarkable things, you know, and we're very humble and, and modest about it. And, um, but, you know, what I'm wanting to have their story be out there in the world, just as a reminder of, you know, as you were saying, yeah, we all have the capacity to, you know, transform, whether it's the suffering or this frustration or the sense of kind of like, oh, you know, like, the world's gonna end or you know whatever yeah. but it's like no not all is lost we're still here and our ancestors you know they they paved the way you know they did work not knowing kind of where that would kind of lead but they just did it mm -hmm. and that's why we're here it's like um you you learn from our past but we also make a huge impact on our future just mm -hmm. as these women's stories have made an impact on me of reminding me hey this is just ongoing right the work yeah. never stops and um don't give up you know um sometimes we may not see the results you know of um our efforts i mean i believe they did you mm -hmm. know which is yeah. still really remarkable for back in the day but it's sort of like you know do you do what you can and um you know because there were people who um during her time you mentioned you know and i think it's a great phrase how tian wu um she lived her life in a way that was about freedom, not just for herself, but for other people, you know, wanting that for other, um, particularly girls and women who were in similar circumstances that she was in and to, um, help them feel empowered, mm -hmm. um, and, and not give up. 
you know, there were people, there were, and I mentioned the sex traffickers and a number of those traffickers were themselves Chinese women, mm-hmm. you know, or they were former, formerly enslaved and they, the route they chose and, you know, they, they maybe felt like, okay, well, if this is the way society is, I want to be top dog. I'm going to have to just yeah. do this and, and, and continue on that oppression. So it's like, you know, so it's like the choices we make and, and how conscientious we are. Um, it makes a huge difference. You know, she could have not opted to take the path that she took, Tianwu, but she did. And, you know, and so here we are. You know, what you just said too, about like, we have a choice, like we've all encountered, you know, some sort of exploitation or tragedy and we get to decide, are we going to reproduce that? Because like you said, we, because some of the traffickers were Chinese women themselves who maybe thought, in, if this is the world, I want to win, right? I want to be a winner and not a loser. But what type of world are we creating with those actions? And I think that's such, you know, such a perfect reminder because in that sense, we all have that same choice every day yes. in small ways and, and in big and in big ways, some of which we won't realize the impact of um, yes. maybe at all in our lifetime. Uh, well, tell me what's next for you. Is there another great her story that we might be looking forward to, or, or what are you thinking about next in terms of maybe another comics biography? Um, I have pivoted. I I actually um some uh I I've I I love poetry, mm. and so I um have been experimenting with graphic poetry or comics poetry um and one of them that just recently got published on for an online exhibit sponsored by the Japanese American Citizens League called Connections and I can send you the link mm-hmm. um it's uh I kind of knew of this story a few years ago about the Chinese immigrants building Sonoma Valley not a lot of people know about this story mm-hmm. but a, co- a former colleague of mine who is a wine enthusiast came across this NPR story and she's like hey I just saw that Sonoma Valley like it was built by the Chinese I was like I had no idea and so um when this exhibition opportunity came up to basically submit whatever creative works that has to do with like the theme of resilience and um, Asian American history. Um, I was like, oh, I want to do something with that. Not quite a book, not a book, but Mm -hmm. I was like, how can I, you know, share with a wider audience this very obscure but important um, part of history of the, you know, especially when it comes to Chinese, um, the contributions of the Chinese um, in early, in the late 19th century earliest 20th so mm-hmm. I was like well let me let me integrate I so it was a visual poem where I integrated historic photographs that I found online through the through digital collections um and added some graphics and you know the text is it's a poem and mm-hmm. it's it's using words that I um came across reading this pretty dense ch- uh, academic text. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, well, how do I parse it and kind of like deconstruct it in a way that kind of is, is like this rhythm is lyrical and is, um, and, and when I share it with you, kind of, I kind of wanted to have it be this um, sort of like sense of when people read the poem or even say it out loud, it's just, the words and the repetition of it and the verbs kind of like the actions that like the hard labor that the migrants had to do it's like you can kind of sense that like this kind of repetitive hard work and um how it was invisible you know and unseen and so 
Um, so I've been playing with that just, um, yeah, like so shorter in short, shorter form works, <laughs> doing more comics, um, by, uh, poetry and I love book arts. Um, I can also send you like a little video I did showing, um, I, I love accordion books mm-hmm. and, you know, so I've been doing, um, comics, poetry, haiku specifically. Um, I try to write haiku, uh, daily <laughs> of just either dreams, dream images, or um, anything I encounter in the natural world or daily life. So um, my friend Rumi Hara, she's a Japanese um, graphic novelist. She, I don't know if she coined this term, but she has used it in conversation with me. She calls them comic coups or comic haikus. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> And um, yeah, it's just for me, I'm kind of at this phase of wanting to keep playing and experimenting with form. I, I'm grateful that I um, had the time and, and the opportunities to do this long form, you know, of books, because mm-hmm. prior to producing these two books, I mostly did zines and mm-hmm. vignettes and kind of autobiofictional works, um, which allowed me a lot of freedom. The research stuff, obviously, it's like, I had to do a lot of fact checking and yeah. proofing. <laughs> you know um and I'm and and then and that was a great experience but I'm also kind of ready to pivot into um trying different processes yeah well I'm (laughs) so excited for you and I can't wait to see all of the wonderful things that you continue to create Don it's such a pleasure to have you thank you so much for being here with us this morning thank you so much Thank you again to Dawn K. Wing. Oh, that was such a great conversation about her historical comics biography, Tian Fu Wu, Freedom Warrior. I absolutely love catching up with Dawn and all of the work that she's doing. You really have to see her books to get the full picture, to really get the the power in this storytelling. And then I think you'll understand too how much fun it can be to learn about history, but also how inspiring it can be. And I think our conversation today really highlighted that once we learn about these different people throughout history who were really just like us, but who ended up doing some absolutely amazing work. I think it gives us a little bit of hope and courage to be those types of people ourselves today. Well, for today's positive note, I want to leave you with this quote that says, you're a fighter. Look at everything you've overcome. Don't give up now. And I thought this was perfect for today's conversation, particularly as we think about the life of Tian Fu Wu and everything that she was able to accomplish. Well, I can't wait for you to be back with me next Monday morning. Let's grab coffee on WYXR. And in case you missed any part of today's conversation or you just want to listen again, send it to a friend. Make sure you subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format available wherever you stream podcasts.